the art of advanced parsha treatment is when we can identify the overall vision of the parsha, what you might call the master plan behind the parsha, how all the seemingly disparate passages come together. It would be nice if the Torah came with the second compilation. You might say a legend, a key, an architectural blueprint of sorts, which would tell us the layout of the parasha is in such and such a fashion, and the various passages are intersecting in this and this fashion, so you can kind of follow the arteries, the hallways of the different passages and how they are connecting and appreciate what is a tangential passage, what is primal to the theme itself. But the Torah doesn't come that way. The divine author, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, expects us, through our amelus, for our through our engagement in the parasha, to develop, to tease out from the parasha what its big picture theme is, what really its master plan is, what is the blueprint behind the parsha? it is our job to develop that through in-depth study of the parsha, and thereby come to have a, a compass of sorts, a way to feel the pulse of the parsha and how it develops. Because many people might learn the parsha. I know it says A, it says B, it says C. Yeah, that's what it says. But what is it really trying to say by collating A with B with C with D? That's, of course, sophisticated parsha development is to be able to unearth that master plan behind the parsha and to compellingly develop it that way to be able to kind of own for ourselves this master plan of the parsha, to be able to see the parsha playing out the way we have, the way we, the way we will theorize, hopefully through compelling textual parallelisms, patterns, and the like. So, with no further ado, Parshas Re'ez, big picture master plan. I would like to sum up with the canard, which the accusation, which secularists have so oftentimes thrown at religious individuals such as us. Don't you know, the worst travesties on earth have been committed in the name of religion. As though I need to answer for all of the horrible things committed in the name of God through practitioners generally of other religions. Right? But they kind of throw us all in one basket. You're religious, you know. The worst travesties are committed in the name of religion. While we know, of course, that the whole premise of Yiddishkeit arguably is not even a religion. It's something fundamentally different than all of those. It's something fundamentally loving, fundamentally empowering to humanity and mankind. Something which makes any 
comparison, correlation with those crazies. Preposterous. Well, that whole issue, don't conflate my Yiddishkeit with those cultish behaviors. I would like to suggest that that is the theme of Parshas Re'eh. Let's see it take shape. Slowly but surely. So for starters, towards the beginning of Parshas Re'eh, it introduces the notion of what you might call a centralized base hamikdash. Up till this point, we've had a mishkan, we've had a mobile home for the shechina, traveling with Klal Yisrael from place to place, and even after they enter Eretz Yisrael and they, relatively speaking, settle down, it is, the mishkan always remains somewhat temporary in Nov and Shiloh and such places. But the Torah says there'll come a time when you will fulfill this mitzvah of building a real bias, in that distinct place which I, Hashem, have chosen. And we recall back from Parashas Fayera, the passage of the Akedah, the Torah alludes to, it's this place, Har Hamoria, which is the place he has chosen. Well, it is our parasha Re'eh which formalizes the mitzvah. You will build a permanent dwelling place, and that phrase, dots, repeatedly dots the early passage of our parasha. As I have up here on the screen, beginning of the parasha Parakid Bays, you notice all the highlighted in yellow, right? The divine author, Akadosh Baruch Hu, is highlighting this notion. This is a parasha's epiphany of shifting from mobile Mishkan to centralized Beis HaMikdash Hashem. That just as we know with a human home, so long as a couple is still in traveling mode from place to place, they don't yet have that sense of space, their zone, their makom, which becomes infused with them and their family and their couplehood and everything it is about. Well, Hashem and Klal Yisrael, the divine couple, you might say, the Shekhinah, will not be in nomadic, mobile, Mishkan state forever. It will eventually find a home, Hashem, where the relationship between Hashem and Klal Yisrael will truly take shape in a space of its own. And that is the moving revelation of Parashas Re'eh, there is this centralized base Hamikdash where we will have a sense of Makom with Hashem, and hence the phrase trumpeted throughout the early passage of the Parashas we have traced by Makom Hashem. In a compelling pattern, really a bookend pattern, when we find symmetrically how the parsha begins and ends with the same thing. Just as the beginning of our parsha, towards the beginning, begins with Makam Ashiyev Hashem, that's centralized Beis HaMikdash, all the way at the end of our parsha, Beis HaMikdash and the very phraseology Makam Ashiyev Hashem again creeps up. Because our parsha ends with a pet, towards the end with a parsha called Aser to Aser, 
the whole mitzvah of tithing, particularly Meiser Shani fruits, which you will bring up to Yerushalayim, the place of the Beis HaMikdash. And you will notice again at the end of the parasha, Parak Yadal to Tazayin, again and again I have up here on the screen how that phrase is reiterated again and again. Hamakam Hashiv HaShem, Hamakam Hashiv HaShem, Hamakam Hashiv HaShem, again and again. And likewise, here at the end of the parasha, it continues with the mitzvah of Bichar, the firstborn, which is to be offered to the Kohanim. And finally, our parsha ends with the mitzvah of Aliyah's regal. Three times a year, you are to ascend and make a pilgrimage to the Makam HaMikdash. And it uses that very phrase again, Makam HaShayivchar Hashem. On Pesach, ascend to Makam HaShayivchar Hashem. On Shavuos, as I have up here on the screen, ascend to Makam HaShayivchar Hashem. And finally, in Chag HaSokos, ascend to Makam HaShayivchar Hashem. It is very clear the bookend pattern. Parsha begins with Mikdash and the phrase Makam HaShayiv HaShem. It ends Aser Ta'aser Bechar Aliyah L'Regel with mitzvahs regarding the, that specific place. We actually all make a home for ourselves, you might say. And come to know Har Habayis and Yerushalayim for our own. As our own. Every Yantif. Every Regel. And likewise, whenever we have what to tithe or we have a Bechar, this is very clearly the, as I put it, the bookend, the bookend phenomenon or a parsha. This is a parsha all about Beis HaMikdash, all about Mokam HaShayiv HaShem. Of course, as is the way with Torah, there are some tangents here. Torah is too broad in scope to be unidimensional in focus. Both Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat For that matter, every good Dvar Torah. Have you noticed that any good compelling Dvar Torah sends wheels in your mind turning? That's the way it works in Torah. So the Chumash itself, you understand, will branch out in different places. Now, it's as it's speaking about the Maiser Shani, which you bring up to the Beis HaMikdash, it then will speak about other tithes. Tithes given to the poor, Maiser Ani, which sets the Torah on a whole tangent you could trace at the end of the parsha when it deals with giving staka to the poor and giving loans to the poor even when the Shemitah year is coming near and treat, treating the victimized Evid Ivri, the impoverished Hebrew slave. All those are tangents of sorts, as it was discussing Meiser Shani in the Makam HaMikdash. It deals with other tithings and gifts to the poor, but that, that's a very clear tangent which you could trace think the Torah trust, the divine author, Akadosh Baruch Hu trusts that we never lose focus tangents, notwithstanding on the big picture theme of the parasha, which is the Beis HaMikdash, the power of my thesis that that is the major theme of the parasha, again, grounded in the, in the pattern that the parasha begins with it, ends with it, and in both places uses the phrase Makam HaShayiv HaShem again and again. This is a parasha all about centralized Beis HaMikdash, finding a place for Hashem and the Jewish people to spiritually reside together as a couple, no longer jumping around from apartment to apartment. You remember that the early days of your marriage, place to place, till professional life comes together, till everything comes together. Well, sooner or later, it comes together for the divine couple, Hashem and Klal Yisrael too. There's a Makam HaShayiv HaShem, and it is that space, the Har may we be Zoha to 
reconvene there, Bekdusha Batira soon in our days. That is really where we thrive as a Jewish people together with the Shechit. That is what our parsha is focused on. So you might say that Parshas Re'etan is a deja vu of sorts, or certainly echoes of something in the Jewish past. Because what was our first encounter historically with the Harabayas, with the Makamashi of Hashem? As I mentioned before, that is the story of the Akhetah. The first time explicitly in Chumash that a Jew travels to the Har Habayas. That is when Hashem tells Avram Avinu, go sacrifice your son Yitzchak in Eretz Hamoria. And of course, the dedication of the Akhetah in that place is not a coincidence. It's in that place, you understand, because all subsequent karbonos, all subsequent Jewish avodah in that very place is infused with the spirit of the Akeda. You appreciate that the entire notion of karbonos, as a, according to the Ramban, that we see the karbon as a place of sacrificing ourselves, is not a flighty notion when you appreciate the first Jewish carbon explicit in the text in that very place, the Akeda, was in fact the Jewish people's willingness to sacrifice themselves, Avram's willingness, Yitzchak's willingness to pay that greatest price in Kirvas Hashem and closest to Hashem. The spirit of the Akeda in that place infuses Har Habayis forevermore. Well, think for a moment. The Akeda is the final episode in Parshas Vayera. Here we are studying Parshas Re'eh. Can't help but notice Parshas Vayera, Parshas Re'eh. Both mean vision. Vayera and he saw Re'eh. See, that's a neat coincidence in quotes. The par- our Parsha, we're, we're tracing as its theme the institutionalizing of Beis Hamikdash in that place, rooted in, or serve, in a sense, a deja vu parsha of the Akedah in Parshas Vayera, when we first encountered that place that Hashem chooses to be forever His, Vayera Re'eh. Interesting. But it gets better than that. The connection between these two parshios. Re'eh and Vayeh, where the parasha of uh, the Akedah becomes even more compelling than simply name similarity. When we study carefully the Pasuk at the end of the parasha, when it says concerning the Aliyah L'Regal at the end of the parasha, Shalush Pa'amim, three times a year, now here there are two ways to read the Pasuk, as the Gemara tells us, because remember there's no Nakudus in the Torah. So the Torah lends itself to several punctuations. Shalosh Palma Shana Yira calls a Chorcha or Yira calls Chorcha. Three times a year, you should be seen by Hashem or Hashem should see you or you should see Hashem, right? Yira calls Chorcha, your male should see Hashem or Yira calls Chorcha, your male should be seen by Hashem. The Torah here, as the Gemara notes, suggests 
when we ascend the higher bias, we are seen by him and we in turn see him. It is a reciprocal relationship. We're encountering the divine, the divine's encountering us, which is a beautiful notion of reciprocity in relationship to Hashem. The notion that when we're in the base of Mechdash, not only do we know, of course, he's looking at us, but we have some palpable vision of the divine. But even more powerful one you appreciate, and here's the deja vu, that very duality, Yira Yira, seeing Hashem and being seen by Hashem, appears at the end of the story of the Akedah back in Parshas Vayera, when it dedicates the place to Harabayas. And it says as follows, Vayikra Avram Shema Makamahu Hashem Yira. Avram called that place Mariah Hashem sees. Asher Yehamar Hayom, that it will be said for all time, Bahar Hashem this is the mountain Hashem can be seen. Notice that that same reciprocal bifurcation of language. Yira Yira, Hashem sees, Hashem is seen, which first appeared concerning the Har Habayis at the end of the Akedah story, suggesting mutual, a mutuality of relationship in Har Habayis. We are there together with Hashem in an intimate relationship. He sees us, we, sees, we see him, beholding him almost with a level of clarity of the divine as he beholds us, right? Here we have it echoing, reverberating in our parsha, parshas rei, appropriately echoing of parshas vayera. Both parshias about vision are coming together in the phrases about vision, yira yira. That's neat. That's textually satisfying, this integrative textual study. And to me, more than a technical textual pattern, really very satisfying really bringing our theory of Parshas Re'eh as a parsha all about Har Habayis, Makam Mikdash, what, what it means to settle down with Hashem in a specific place. Really giving it rich, historical meaning. Really pulling the story of the Akedah of old, which happens in this place. Not only pulling up language from that passage, as we are suggesting the Torah is doing, but hopefully seeking to evoke in Jewish consciousness when you ascend to Har Habayis, I want you to think all the way back to Avram Avinu and Yitzchak there. And certainly give no credence to our enemies who seek every day to destroy the vestiges of Jewish presence from that Har Habayis. This is going on, unfortunately, right now. Um, this is our place, and it's the place of the Shekhinah, all the way back from Parshas Vayera, that first Parsha vision, now being underscored in Parshas Rei. So, so far, so good. But when we delve a little deeper, the Parsha, I believe, challenges us now to move beyond the general theme of a sacred place, a makam, mikdash, and the notion of settling down with the divine. You're no longer a newlywed, a newlywed period of mishkan, of traveling from place to place, apartment to apartment. The Torah challenges us to... to, to develop more of a message. What is this base Hamikdash really all about? Let's sensitize ourselves to how the Torah introduces the base Hamikdash in our parasha. Fascinatingly, it introduces the base Hamikdash in our parasha through an inverse vision of Batayavodazara, of what the sword did 
pagan temples looked like. The Torah tells us in our parsha before it ever speaks about the base of Ekdash, it actually opens by telling us, when you enter the land, you're going to see all of these Canaanite temples, all of the, we would say, the Gechka houses, the idolatrous structures of the Ovdi Avodazara. And it says, Get rid of their altars. Break them down. Don't do that to Hashem. What you see in those temples, the type of pagan structures you see, which must be destroyed, don't ever do that to Hashem. Rather build a base Hamekdash, and here it speaks about Malcolm Ashiyev Hashem, the passages we studied before. Now Rashi gives several interpretations what this means when it says, the pagan temples which you encounter, which you're supposed to destroy, don't build temples like that to Hashem. Rather build a base of Mekdash. In one interpretation, Rashi suggests that means don't have many temples. They have, they have many temples. There are many gods, the sun god, the thunder god, the fertility goddess. You have one base of Mekdash, on the other hand, to make it very clear, we're monotheists who believe in one god. That's one interpretation of Rashi. But to me, it is notable within itself that the Torah is introducing Beis HaMikdash in our parasha. According to our study thus far, the grand theme of the parasha, the Beis HaMikdash, through a point of contrast, build a temple, but let it not be like the idolatrous temples. Draw that distinction very clear. A Jewish temple is not like a Roman or Canaanite or Phoenician temple. We need to draw that distinction very, very clear. And I would dare argue that as we study the parasha from a broader perspective, and we see how much Avodah Zarah is dealt with in our parasha, many, many passages, it becomes clear that the Torah here, in introducing the Beis HaMikdash and Parashas Re'eh, is really coming to contrast what a Jewish temple is supposed to look like and how different it is from a pagan temple. Not only do we have major passages in our parasha about Avodah Zarah, Mesa Sumidiach, Dachas, which now fall right into place. The Torah elaborates on Avodah Zarah here because it wants to draw a contrasting image. What Jewish worship in a Jewish temple looks like, how different it is from their worship. Yeah, it almost wants on two sides of the screen, not a before and after picture of, say, some miracle dietary drug before and after, but here, no, 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 an even more extreme contrast. Jewish worship versus pagan worship, and let there be, never shall the twains meet. Very, very clear. And the Torah make, the Torah highlights the fact that it is seeking in our parsha to distinguish their temples from our temple. Because beyond the original verse we studied, introducing our base HaMekdash with the statement, Lotas and Cain, Lotas and Cain Lasham Lokacha, Perakid Beis Pasek Dalad, do not build temples to Hashem the way they build temples. You'll find very similar language later in our parsha when it describes the actual rites and acts of worship that they do. 
Don't become interested and seek to mimic their rights of worship. You hear the echo in the text? How here, Parak Yud Beis Pasak Lamad Aleph. When it says, don't worship Hashem in the base Hamikdash through those rites of worship, through those acts the pagans did. You see how it's the same language earlier in the parasha when it spoke about do not build many temples the way they have many temples. Lotasan came, the unmistakable reverberation of language now that you hear it, now that you see it. Well, more than a textual reverberation, I think the entire parsha with its Avodah Zara theme on one side and its Beis Hamikdash theme on the other side is really coming to underscore this message. Lotasan came, Lotasan came, Lotasan came. As much as I, the Rebona Shalom, am introducing here the notion of a temple, of a Makam HaShayevchar Hashem, never conflate it with the type of temples they have and the types of worship which they do. Apparently, there is a real danger upon the introduction of a Jewish temple that will behave there like a pagan temple. You know why? Beis HaMikdash, temple, means institutionalized religion. It is no longer simply an avodas Hashem of the heart, in the inner sanctum of the heart. But now there is, you might say, an outer sanctum. There is an institution. And there are, of course, all the trappings of institutional life. And once something is institutionalized, immediately it is compared to other seemingly similar institutions. So long as Yiddishkeit is Avodah Shebelev, you might say, and any place of worship is a mobile mishkan, you can look at Yiddishkeit in its own self-contained context. But on the other hand, the, our Parsha's introduction of a Mokmashiyev Chayashem, even the word temple, when you say the word temple, does it not conjure up in your mind despite your best instincts otherwise? Does it not contrap even the word temple? Pagan temple? You can't help but conflate. Large house of worship, large house of worship. And you might think of every single culture's attempt to show veneration to their deity through a large edifice and the like. So the Torah is very concerned that we do this which I think gives rise to that whole canard which we began with. When we religious Jews are asked, how, how can you hold your head proud as a religious Jew? Do you not know that the worst travesties in the world are committed in the name of religion? And we say, are you for real? We share anything in common with those guys? Even the term God means something else. We don't believe in the same thing. Your vision, your vision, your vision of a supposed higher almighty that would send up people to blow themselves up? If anything, from a Jewish perspective, you're worshiping Satan. Some Satan of your imagination. That's not an almighty of love. Of, it's, we're using the word God to mean entirely different things, right? It's a joke, but you understand it, the, it, there is the misconception of institutionalized religion. 
that the physical edifice of a temple can give rise to that misconception. And the Torah is making it very, very clear here. In a parasha so focused on Beis HaMikdash on one hand, but so focused on separating ourselves from Avodah Zara and from the idolatrous temples on the other, don't conflate the two. Don't fall prey to that temptation to conflate the two. We share nothing in common with that. And therefore our parasha in the verse we read before spells out not only how horrific the idolatrous rituals are, but how anathema they are to everything Hashem is about. I mean, just read the simple Pasuk. Perak yud base Pasuk Lamed Aleph in our parasha. Ki Hashem asher Everything which Hashem finds abominable they do to their gods. They burn their children alive to their gods. What is most anathema to a Jewish conception of a god, a loving being, and in his, to satisfy him, to pay tribute to him, I will burn my own flesh and blow my child alive. The Torah is for full dramatic and emotional appeal, spelling out here, don't fall prey to this misconception of religion and religion, God and God, and say it's the same thing, the same thing. As much as our parish is introducing base hamikdash, institutionalized, you might call it religion, don't make any comparisons. As we said, even the word God means fundamentally a different thing. That's evident by their what their worship is about and what our worship is about. So here we have now an even deeper sense of harmony in our parsha. How it is not disjointed at all in its two major focuses, Beis on one hand, and divorcing ourselves from the idolaters on the other hand. That is exactly the point. The Torah is very wary here. Very wary here. In a parashas re'eh, which is fundamentally about introducing a Beis HaMikdash. Do not allow the introduction of edifice of institutionalized religion to allow us to be drawn in any way into that muck of the worst travesties in the world that are committed in the name of religion. Religion, house of worship, it means even God, it means something else. We share nothing in common with those people. And I would argue not limited to Beis HaMikdash and Avodah Zarah per se. The parsha is more broadly coming to draw this distinction for us between Yiddishkeit and other cults, religions, and so on. And coming to tell us, just look at what we're about. Look at our ways of life, and you will see we have nothing in common. For example, our parsha says, you are children of Hashem. You're children of Hashem. So don't mourn your, the dead, your dead the way the pagans mourn the dead. They would rip their hairs out. They would slash their skin up. You're children of Hashem. Don't do that. Various commentaries are given to this Pasuk. 
What is the connection because you're children of Hashem, therefore don't mourn the dead that way? I would suggest on the simplest level it's saying as follows. You're children of Hashem. So even when you stare down death, that most unfathomable challenge, how can I wrap my head around that greatest struggle which a human being has, has brushed with the most impossible conundrum, Ultimately, I'm a, I'm a child of Hashem. The Almighty loves me. So I am not abandoned even when, I, even when I'm abandoned by Halila, one's abandoned by their earthly parents, by their next of kin. You're bonam atem l'ashem alokechem, so you don't do that. A Jew never goes overboard even at a time of mourning. Ultimately, we never lose hope. Ultimately, we, we never lose a feeling of being loved. We're bonam atem l'ashem alokechem, says the Pasuk. You see, the idolaters didn't respond that way. For all their veneration of their gods, they felt abandoned at a time of struggle. When their next of kin died, closest of kin died, they ripped their hairs out. They slashed their skin up. They, th- their veneration of the gods didn't give them any coping mechanism how to deal with death. You know why? Because their notion of God in terms of their gods is fundamentally different than ours. They did not conceive of loving being, of a loving being. They conceived of what? The gods, as they conceived them, were fundamentally strong men, metaphysical strong men, but tyrants much like the mortal tyrants, tyrants who they had to pay off. You want the goddess of fertility on your side. You got to pay her off if you want her like your, your wife to conceive. You want the god of thunder to be on your side, not to strike you down with... Thunder, or for that matter, a bolt of light. Got to pay him off. So these are cruel tyrants because they can't conceive of true love in the most unconditional way everything Hashem is. So they feel totally abandoned. When the next of kin dies, they have nothing to take solace in. It means, it means they did not pay off the god or goddess sufficiently, right? That now, they are, that now they're being visited by volleys of divine wrath. And where does that leave them? Nowhere. They pull out their hair. They slash up their skin, but a Jew doesn't respond that way. The difference of response when facing the greatest challenge can not be a deeper validation of how fundamentally different our entire conceptions are. As much as the R, and I don't mean for Republican, I mean rather for religious might be next to both of our names on a demographic sheet. And hence this Pasuk, weave so seamlessly into the greater theme of, of the parsha, And hence the par- and hence the text continues to say, You are chosen. You're distinct. You're fundamentally different from them. And I would argue that the laws of Kashrus in our parasha as well, which talk about the difference even the way a Jew eats and that how that signifies the distinction of being a Jew, is also intended in the same way to show how the difference between us and them is not only true in terms of mode of worship, but in our entire way of life. The fact that even the act of eating, physicality itself, Assume sanctity. It is not the devil where either one engages with it in the most animalistic way or totally eschews it. It becomes an act of sanctity. 
perform, we make eating angelic. We make physical, we infuse physical life with meaning and purpose. And hence, the parish of Kashrus is introduced in our parish with the phrase, don't eat that which is abominable. You, you appreciate the echo, the reverberation back to the parish of Avodah in our parish. When it says that same term, he called Toevas Hashem. They worship in a way which is abominable to Hashem. Here it is using that same language, Toeva, distinguishing the way we eat from the way they eat. The way a Jew eats becomes an act of sanctity because our conception of not only Hashem, but all of life is fundamentally different from theirs. Everything is loving. Everything can be sanctified. And one growing up in the West, one need not think creatively to realize what I mean when I say acts of physicality, all acts, eating, relationship, become holy and sacred in the loving confines of Judaism. I think in this regard, if I may say a joke, so to speak, within the tribe, they talk about the various kingdoms and districts under various counts and the like in pre-Bismarck Germany, Bavaria and Prussia and so forth. And that was the land, of course, of Brother Grimm and Hans Andersen and the fairy tales. And they describe a castle, which was not a romantic castle of Cinderella and Snow White, but actually a monastery. So it was not, no Disney fluorescent colors, but actually dark uh, cobwebs, deep somewhere there in in the land of Brother Grimm's Tales. And the scene is described. One day, one monk... In the monastery goes missing. Ooh, where did he go? His fellow brothers go looking for him. And finally they trace him down the steps of the monastery. Deep into the monastery basement. Under a trap door. They find the missing monk sitting there. Not with... Uh, uh, pouring over an old pre-King James Bible in the original Greek. And he's hitting his head against the wall and he's screaming, it doesn't say celibate. It says celebrate. They mistranslated it. Maybe it's the Pasuk of the Simach Azishto. It says celebrate, not celibate. We got it all wrong. So that humorous tale kind of kind of shows our, our, whole, our attitudes towards physicality. Fundamentally different and how eating and relationship and everything is fundamentally different. And that's how I think the, why I think the parish of Kashrus and its notion of how the act of eating becomes infused with sanctity also finds a place in Parshas Re'e along with its big picture message, which is along with the introduction of Beis HaMikdash, of an edifice traversing throughout our parsha, do not conflate organized religion here with organized religion there, 
we share nothing in common, our vision of everything, including Hashem himself, is different. Draw the distinction. And from this perspective, I would like to suggest we, have, we can find new meaning, new appreciation, even for the opening phraseology of the parsha. See distinctions, blessings and curses. Don't conflate. See distinctions between good and evil. Look at good, look at blessings, look at evil. Look means stare it down. It's easy to become confused. Superficial people, superficial thinkers, <coughs> they don't see and distinguish blessing from curses. They, based on very sophomoric categorizations, throw blessings and curses into the same basket. They conflate us with them. They ask us questions like, you religious Jew, do you not know that the worst travesties in the world are committed in the name of religion? They categorize based on the R next to your name. Are you religious? They don't have any sense of brachal, kloa, blessings, curses. They don't assess the moralities of ways of life. Right? I think we can have a new appreciation for that opening sentence in our parsha in line with the whole midnaha parsha structure of the parsha, the way we dissected it, which is really all about distinguishing our way of life from theirs, our Beis HaMikdash from their temples, our ethos, our hashkafos from theirs. We never be, need to feel defensive with the question, you know the worst travesties in the world are committed in the name of religion. We share nothing in common with them. Even the identification of what God means and who God is. We share nothing in common Lotas and Cain, as our, as our Pasha re, reiterates again and again, up on the screen with two images here, the Beis HaMikdash introduced in our Pasha on one hand, and the Kuros image, the pagan temple and pagan way of life on the other, both equally stressed in two contrasting images of Rea This is, I think, a rewarding endeavor we engaged in tonight. Here we, we found place for every passage in, in the parasha fits right in. It coalesces around this theme and it, it, it relates to this very, the parasha comes to life as a Torah Chaim now. It's not only integrated, harmonized, all in place now, but it, it's relevant. It's resonant. In terms of dealing this question, this, this canard which is thrown out on us, you know, the worst travesties in the world are committed in the name of religion. Well, if that's religion, count Yiddishkeit out. We share nothing in common with them. We are fundamentally different. Hold your head high. Thank you very much. Any questions?